Let's look at John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, verses 36 to 38, and verse 44. I'm going to try to answer the second question of our FAQ series, Frequently Asked Questions. The question today is, what do the scriptures teach about predestination? So I'll do my best. I'm Harold Kim, one of the pastors here. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 28 to begin with. This is Jesus uh, being asked this question that... Uh, the disciples are asking him this question, verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Then verses 36 to 38. This is Jesus who is continuing to speak. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The last verse, verse 44, chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, this is God's word so far. Uh, If you subscribe or read Time magazine... I understand from the news this week that President Trump is pretty obsessed with Time Magazine. In 2009, on the cover, well, actually one of the articles, sorry, not on the cover, it had an article saying the top 10 trends that will shape the world. The top 10 trends that are shaping the world, and number three in the top 10, lo and behold, was this movement called New Calvinism. According to Time Magazine, number three out of the top 10 trends shaping the world was New Calvinism. So if you're curious at all, if you're a student of current times, it's pretty vital to understand what is New Calvinism. Now, last week, we did our best to answer that number one question, how can there be one true religion? How can Christianity exclaim, Uh, claim exclusive truth. Today, the question goes, what do the scriptures teach about predestination? Now, just to refresh your memory, last week I said, I suggested to you that the only people who ask the question, how can there be one true religion, are pluralists, are people who grew up in the West and educated in the West. I would almost bank on it, the person who wrote this question, today's question, has some exposure to or some background in Calvinism. Because only Calvinist type of Christians ask the question uh, uh, about predestination. And this brand or this strain of thought and practice, which is resurging now according to Time Magazine, is a subset within evangelical Christianity today. And it assumes that you have some knowledge of that. So I'm just gonna unpack some definitions first two doctrines under Calvinism, and what difference it makes. So three Ds, definitions, doctrines, and what difference should this make? Some definitions. Evangelical Christianity, is that just the political voting block? No, evangelical, as one of my old seminary professors once said, is anyone who can stomach Billy Graham. Anyone who can handle Billy Graham, a modern-day version of that over at Harvest Crusade here in, El- in Anaheim, they kind of sell out Angel Stadium, is Greg Laurie. 
Now, an evangelical Christian is someone who believes uh, the Bible is God's word, that the Bible is inerrant, it's without any error, it's the highest authority of, of, of standard of life and practice, and it shows us how to be saved in Christ. An evangelical is someone who believes in a triune God, one God but three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. An evangelical also believes the answer to last week's question is that indeed there is no other way, no other truth, no other life but Jesus Christ, the exclusive Savior and Lord Christ Jesus. An evangelical believes those three things. Now what is Calvinism? Calvinism is a resurging strain of thought and practice within evangelicals. A very well-known Baptist preacher way back in the day by the name of Charles Spurgeon, he described Calvinism like this. I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. He was a Baptist preacher, but he said, Preaching Christ and him crucified is equal to somehow Calvinism. Now, in no way do I believe that Charles Spurgeon was saying only Calvinists preach the Christian gospel. But I do think what he was saying, and I do agree with him in what he was saying, is that Calvinists tell you the clearest, richest, most beautiful, and I think the most biblical expression of the magnitude of God's grace in the gospel. I do believe, along with Charles Spurgeon and many other pastors and leaders today, which is resurging, they're called New Calvinists, that the best way to describe the depth and the height and the length and the width of God's amazing grace, or as one theologian wrote a book entitled, Putting Amazing Back Into Grace. I think the best way to put amazing back into grace is Calvinist teaching. In college, when I first heard or read or learned about Calvinism, it cured me from depression. It helped to call me into pastoral ministry. It shapes the character and the DNA of current ministry. And it is utterly precious to me because I believe it best recovers, reapplies, and expresses the gospel of grace. Now, please make no mistake, Calvinism is not a new movement. There, are, there shouldn't be new movements in Christianity. Calvinism traces all the way back to the scriptures. It traces back to the apostles, the prophets. It traces back to St. Augustine. And of course, it traces back to the reformers exactly 500 years ago who recovered the clarity and the beauty of the gospel amidst the abuses and the obscurity of the medieval church. Calvinism is nothing new, but it is recovered. And in fact, John Calvin himself, a reformer who worked in Geneva, himself did not come up with a set of teachings called Calvinism. But this was articulated as a response to the five points by students of Jacob Arminius. So people believe in the teaching and follow John Calvin in his biblical teaching, they came back with five counter-responses to students of Jacob Arminius. And students of Jacob Arminius are called Arminians. Arminians. Now please do not confuse that with the Kardashians who are Armenian. That is an ethnic group. 
But Arminians is a theological strain, a theological school, who presented five points. And then the students of Calvin came back and countered that. Calvinists and Arminians are all, I believe, if they believe in the Bible and Jesus is the only way and the triune God and worship and love Jesus from the heart, they're all Christians. Just like Dodger fans and even Angel fans are Californian. But clearly one is better. (laughs) Definitions. Let's get into the doctrines. Doctrines is a set of teachings and beliefs. And thank you for whoever submitted this question. It's a teaching and a set of beliefs from the scriptures. And I really embrace the description that George Whitfield, an English revivalist who happened to be the most famous man in the colonies of America before George Washington, he called Calvinism the doctrines of grace. He called the five points of Calvinism the doctrines of grace because really it's all about grace. What is popularly known or identified with Calvinism falls under an acronym of TULIP. TULIP, the flower, T-U-L-I-P. And the five points of Calvinism, again, as a counter-response to Arminianism, goes like this. T stands for total depravity. U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. And the P, perseverance of the saints. The set of teachings or doctrines from the scriptures, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. You are going to thank me that I'm only going to cover the first two. Phew, praise God. We're only going to do total depravity and unconditional election. And please stay with me as it will answer the question, what do the scriptures teach about predestination? Let's start with the T. Now, if you're interested in all five points, I'm going to try to get a link up at ChristCentralSC.com on our website pretty soon. We're in a different format, in a different version. I do cover all five doctrines of grace. But for today, just two. The first, total depravity. What does this mean? What does this mean? Total depravity means all aspects, all faculties of my human condition has been corrupted by sin. It's total. But total depravity does not mean this is how sinful and depraved I could be. It is not talking about the depth of my sin. It's talking about the breadth, the totality. We all could be far worse off if there were no cops, no laws, no lights, no government, no recording devices, no conscience, you don't have to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, God still restrains us. He doesn't allow us to be as evil and depraved as we could be. He gives us all this restraints. It's called common grace. But total depravity here is not speaking about that. We could be far worse, but it talks about the breath, the totality, the way I think, my mind, my desires, my feelings, my heart, and my activities, my hands, what I do physically, concretely. The objection to this well goes, and it's a very sensible, intelligent objection. Pastor, or oh Christian, 
I hear this all the time. I can't stand the pessimism about Christianity, about the human condition. I know human beings are capable of so much good. Aren't human beings basically good? Aren't they angelic in a lot of ways? Aren't they capable of choosing, achieving so many good, nice things for other people? I will first and foremost say, absolutely. Absolutely. Christians will say, do you know why they are good at all? Because they reflect the image of God. But you're asking the wrong question. You're objecting and saying, well, Christianity teaches that everyone's so bad, so bad that they're not good at all. No. We believe that human beings are capable of much good. But there's a different question. Here's the question we should be asking. If there is a God, how good do I have to be to be right with him? How good is good enough to be called righteous by God? Is any human being as good as God? Now stay with me. If there is a God who by definition and essence is pure, ultimate good. If God is pure, ultimate, by essence and definition good. Can I ask you a question? If you don't have a life with him, how good could you be? You see, here's what Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us. There is none righteous, no, not one. That is not saying no one's good. It's just saying no one is as good as God. Not one. And then in verse 11 it says, I'll tell you why no one is as good as God. No one seeks after God. No one really wants God. No one wants God to be God. Do you know why? Because we all want to be God. That's the heart of sin. We don't want to take orders from someone. We don't have to submit to someone. We all want to be the number one. We want to be the chief. We want to be the president. We want to be the king. We want to be the CEO. We want to be the number one, don't we? We hate it when other people tell us what to do. But according to the scriptures, if there is a creative, intelligent, all awesome, all powerful, eternal, unchanging God, and he himself is good, <clears throat> how good can you be? Without God. You know, I'm sorry to tell you that at this very moment, Sunday after Sunday, you see me or other pastors come and try to study and we really pray and we try to give all of our hearts to communicating to you what God says. But if I asked you, you know how many times I have ever preached or, or taught the word of God purely for the glory of God? Do you know how many times I've shared the gospel, evangelized, or done a work of mercy for my neighbor, someone who is disadvantaged, or someone that my heart breaks for? How many times have I done any good thing 100% purely for the glory of God? In other words, if you take my best act in all of my little life, and you analyze it under the microscope of God's judgment, would any one thing be declared righteous? And I'll tell you, you don't have to take a hard guess. You know how many times I've preached or done anything good purely for the glory of God? This is how many times. In fact, right now, I'm not doing it. I don't even come close. If God were to measure my righteousness based upon Harold, how well do you do Christian things this is what I'm going to come up with. Because according to God's own standard, him, 
his righteousness, his holiness, his truth, his absolute purity, I am depraved. So my friend, Christian doctrine teaches us there is a pessimistic analysis on the human condition, yes. Capable of much good, but stop comparing to other people. If there is a God, how do you get right with God? So we're pessimistic that we cannot be right with God, and that is realistic. That is very realistic. I mean, this is why Jesus repeatedly taught, is it not? Verse 36, for instance, in chapter 6. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Why do we not believe? Because we we're not interested. We don't want him. Look at verse 44. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Again in verse 65 says the same thing. He repeatedly teaches this. And then in chapter 8 verse 47, which we did not read, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Why does Jesus clearly and repeatedly hammer the point home that nobody comes to God, nobody wants to believe in God, Actually, people can't believe in God because people don't want to come to God. Why does he keep saying that over and over and over and over? It's to prove the point back in chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, which we started with. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What must we do? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus is saying, is it your work that you will be interested, love, and believe, and come to Jesus Christ? Jesus said, you don't want to. You won't. You can't. You're incapable. You're totally depraved. No one really seeks after God unless God comes seeking after you. Why do you choose Christ? Because God chooses you. Why do you have an interest? Why are you curious at all today? Let me try to encourage you. If we're totally depraved, why do we have any interest in curious? Because God has an interest in you. You know, my wife, Sunny, has explained and described to me in one moment, which I'll never forget. She captured her childhood church experience growing up in Miami. Not only was she a child, but it was Miami. It was Miami. There's a lot wrong going on there for sure. She explained her childhood church experience in Miami versus she happened to marry a pastor of the Calvinist kind. She had no clue what that was. And now she is still married to a guy who's doing Calvinistic ministry, which tends to me, you can already tell, oh, today's sermon, wow, it's a little bit academic. It's a little bit kind of intellectual. Here's what Sonia said. You know, Harold, going to church in Miami when I was growing up, I used to cry all the time. I used to cry for no reason. I had no idea why I cried. Now, after I married you and going to the church with you, now I never cry. <laughs> Except for you, I cry because of you. Now, of course, and she would add, no, there are times that she cries now. Here's what she says. I actually understand better why I cry now. And here's what's happened to me and her. Isn't it usual that our hearts outrun our heads? Isn't it so common that emotion and passion just goes first without understanding why you did that? 
And let me ask you a question. When's the last music concert or movie or entertainment show utterly changed your life, but you wept during the movie? I mean, you wept and you were so inspired, but didn't you just come out of the movie theater and think, oh, am I going to eat a hot dog or nachos next? And what Calvinism, what scriptural teaching wants to bring is where your head starts to catch up with your heart. And when both come together, my friend, we just confess it in the New City Catechism, when you think and feel, your life gets most profoundly changed. Total depravity, though, means we are not able. We are not able. So Jesus said, whose work is it for anyone to believe God's work or yours? God's work or yours? Pessimistic about the human condition, but realistic. But let's get to the second doctrine. Most optimistic of God. Calvinist type of Christians tend to diminish human beings, and they tend to elevate and exalt and magnify and worship the greatness of God. It is the utter opposite of humanism. It is the utter opposite of I will, I can, I change, I commit, I'm in command, I'm a savior, I'm a Lord, I self-improvement, yes you can to a certain degree. But when it comes to matters of being right with God and having eternal life and experiencing the kingdom of heaven, you are utterly incapable. This is well above your pay grade, my friend. Don't even try. Which is why the scriptures teach you are wholly unable when it comes to this, totally depraved. Therefore, it follows you, unconditional election. Unconditional election. If I am unable, totally incompetent, I am I'm not capable of doing the ultimate good. What is the ultimate good? To love God with everything I got and love my neighbor as myself. Jesus said, those are the top two commandments. So if you do want to go to heaven based upon your own works, just carry out those two commandments perfectly. You, you belong in heaven. You deserve heaven. It'd be unjust of God not to accept you into heaven. So just love God with everything you got and love your neighbor exactly as yourself, you are righteous. That is as good as God. But if I can't do that, if I fail to do that, I'm unable to do that, I try so hard, I can't do it. You see, if I am incapable of doing the ultimate good, which is to love God and choose him, then where in the world is it, how is it gonna happen that God is gonna get to know me and love me, and I'm gonna get into a relationship with him? The only answer to that would be, it can't come from me. It's got to come from God. If I'm totally depraved, totally unable, then God is the only one who is able, and he does the choosing. Unconditional election chooses to save me, chooses to save some based on no prior condition. Based on no prior condition. 
Even before the world began, the scriptures would say, even before time was created, even before I did anything right or I did anything at all, before I walked an aisle, before I prayed, before I knew the Bible, before I confessed the right things, before I cried, before I gave money, before I was good to my wife, before I loved my neighbor, before I forgave someone, before I went on a mission trip, before I did anything religious or good, or relatively nice before any of that God chose to love me save me know me choose me get to know me and put me in a right relationship with him look at verse 64 John chapter 6 verse 64 but there are some of you who do not believe this is Jesus teaching he he said this while he taught this is a really bad Bible study. You all come to Bible study, you just, oh, I heard this magnificent teacher named Jesus. And then he just says, you know, but some of you do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is credited by my father. <laughs> so his Bible study went like this. Thank you for coming. You're so interesting. You think I'm fascinating, interesting, but um, uh, I already know who's going to come and already I already know who's not. So Jesus basically said, it had nothing to do with my teaching. What did it have to do with? Uh, my father already chose some. Now, <laughs> why does Jesus talk like that? Why does Jesus and the gospel writers tell us Jesus taught as if he knew those who would believe and then he knew those who wouldn't? Do you know why he taught like that? Because he did. Because he did know. It's all based on unconditional election. God's prior choice, or is it really our choice? Now, if you stayed so long, he said, oh my goodness, what are you doing? You're butchering this question. I asked about predestination. What is this election business? Predestination is a general term for God's sovereign ordering and rule over all things. Predestination is a general term that God is God over everything. Election, unconditional election, is the more specific term where God sovereignly and savingly chooses his people. Predestination is God's sovereignty over everything. Election is a specific term where God chooses some. Where he selects and loves and saves his own people. And the difference between my Kardashian brothers and sisters, who are Christians, and Calvinist Christians boils down to this. On what basis does God elect or choose his people? Is it really unconditional or conditional? Does God really choose some based upon because I chose him? Or did God already choose and that's why I chose him? You see, in third grade, I went to vacation Bible school, got in a fight, a rotten kid, rotten kid, thought I was a good kid. That's the first time a camp counselor took me aside because we're beating each other. And he took me aside and said, you know, Harold, you are sinful. I said, what? Sinful? Dude, my nickname is Happy Kid, HK. <laughs> my parents think I'm an angel. No, you're sinful. Jesus had to come and die for you. I was floored. I wept, believed in Jesus said, I am without hope unless he comes out and saves me. 
Now, it's one of two ways. God in eternity past saw that that rotten boy Harold in third grade would come to choose and believe in him. Therefore, because God saw that I would do that in third grade, he chose me. That's called foreknowledge, right? But it depends how you define it. Foreknow, you see, God saw, oh, rotten little Harold, though, but he did something really good. Because he chose me, I'm going to choose him. Calvin is going to come around based on the scripture and say, mm -mm. Harold, the only reason a rotten boy like you would choose him is because God chose you first. You see, choosing to believe in Christ is either the cause of God's election or it's the result. Choosing to love Jesus Christ is either the cause of why Jesus loves you or it's the result that Jesus loved you. Which way is it? Do I love Christ first and then he loves me? Or is it a verse that says, because he first loved me, I love him. An unconditional election teaches if it were based on conditions, if it were based on you, if it were based on your intelligence, if it were based on your morality or your mood, no one would come. But if it's based on him, based upon God, oh, there's a miracle called salvation that could happen. I mean, verse 44, again, Jesus clearly, unequivocally, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Get that sequence right. How do people come to him? First, the Father draws him. Unless the Father draws him, no one will come. So is it based upon God's electing grace or our free will? All evangelicals, all Christian brothers and sisters believe Jesus alone saves. All Christian brothers and sisters believe it's only by his grace, not our goodness. And then we all believe that it's by faith, by faith. Just fall into his arms. Just rest in him. Believe in him. Stop working to save yourself, to be loved. Just fall into his arms by faith. You shall be saved. But if you probe just a little deeper, what was the ultimate cause of why you were saved? My Armenian brothers and sisters will say it's because I chose. Calma's brothers and sisters say it's because he chose. My daughter Taylor, who's 14 now, wrote me a letter. Daddy, 20 reasons why I love you on Father's Day. She's really clever. And she gave me $21 bills as a gift. And number 17 on her top 20, I know she has like a million, but she had to stop at 20. <laughs> number 17, she wrote this, Daddy, you support me and I'm proud of me even when I fail and mess up. What a blessing to hear that. Calvinism sets the highest standard of how all of us ought to love failing people. Failing children, failing spouses, failing friends, failing workplace, failing church. You support me and I'm proud of me even when I fail and mess up. Calvinism says and shows the highest standard because that's what God does. My youngest daughter, Elizabeth, also wrote me a card and is entitled to, quote, my lovely father, end quote. And one of the lines in her letter, Daddy, you have made me happy. You have made me sad. You have annoyed me and so much more. <laughs> but I love you. 
Whether my girls know it or not, they're living out Calvinism as to how they can love a failing father. Unconditional. So suppose you get the hottest party ticket down in downtown LA on a Friday. You live in Fullerton and the host of this party is so ballin'. He says, not only do I exclusively invite you, I bought you your metro ticket too. 6 p.m. from Fullerton. You better get on that train. I have a free ticket for you. As soon as you take the ticket that he sent you, board the train at Fullerton, you participate in a predestined or predetermined journey. As soon as you board the metro to go to a party in downtown LA, you freely chose to end up in a predestined location. Now, if you're somewhat foolish, you're late, or you lose the ticket, or you throw away the ticket, or somewhere halfway you jump out of the train before downtown LA, you freely chose to not get to the predetermined location. In a similar fashion, my friend, God the Father is the greatest host of a party and a banquet that will never end and will be the most magnificent thing you could ever attend. And he gave you a free ticket. And that ticket is stained with blood. That ticket was purchased because our God the Father knew what it's like to give up and lose his son. But somehow it has your name on it. And as soon as you take that free ticket, and you board a train, if you will, a train by believing in the gospel because the Holy Spirit keeps wooing you, tugging at your heart. And you board the train, and once you get on that train, you don't jump off. You stay on the train. You stay true and humble and believing and repenting. You see the world passing by, and it's getting ugly and more dim, but the lights up ahead are so much brighter. You stay persevering, you stay on that train, and you end up at your predetermined, predestined location, you then will see, wow, how God chose me to take me all the way to the end. But you get to freely choose. Absolutely get to freely choose. Please do not be confused today. To believe in predestination in no way, shape, or form takes away your freedom to do what you want to do. You get to choose. Do you want the ticket? Do you believe in the ticket? Do you believe there's a road to eternal life? Do you ever even want to get on the train? Then after the train, you can jump off at any point. You could lose faith. You could lose heart. You can believe that it's no longer true. But if you jump off the train or you lose the ticket or you don't get on, you're never going to be able to taste and experience the kingdom of heaven. But let me tell you this. You know this doctrine of predestination? It was never meant, never, to be taught and understood in such a way to determine and judge, oh, that one's, that one's predestined, this one's not. It's never used that way. That is well above our pay grade. No one can determine or judge. But do you know why predestination is clearly taught? Do you know why predestination is so important and it's there in the scriptures? It is for true believers. It is for true followers of Jesus. Because should you choose Jesus Christ ever, should you, out of so many in the world, choose to love and believe in Jesus Christ, and should you stay on board, 
There's going to come a day where the realm is going to be so new and perfect, it's going to really wipe away every grief, every fear, every pain, every loss, every, every incomprehensible thing. The scenery is just going to continue to get more beautiful. And when you reach the end, and you finally fall into the arms of Jesus face to face, you are going to ask forever, how did I get on this train in the first place? And how in the world did I stay on? How did I hold on? How did I hang on? How did I hope on and on and on and on? How did I kiss a world goodbye and kiss my old self goodbye, but want to kiss Jesus more? Do you know how that happened? It's called people who are going to heaven. And we're going to sing to the praise, to the glory of God's grace. Predestination is taught to so sweeten, so humble, so strengthen, so reassure genuine believers who are going to make it to the end. Isn't this why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 teaches us from Apostle Paul? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. I stand before you and tell you, apart from the sheer grace of God, it was not my doing. It was not even my choosing. And ultimately, it's not even me hanging on. I know someone who chose me. I know someone who loved me to the point of death. And I know someone who hangs on to me and grips me. And no one will snatch me out of his head. This is why you have news to share. You can invite anyone to the party. You should invite one more for the gospel to the party. Because it's all by grace. Unconditional.